You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thanks, Max, and welcome back to the podcast, everyone. With the passage of the Reproductive Health Act in 2019, Illinois, for the very first time, defined reproductive health care, including abortion care, as a fundamental right. But that right is not extended to many in our state. Illinois' dangerous parental notice of abortion law requires young people either to notify a parent or a designated adult defined by the law or to go in front of a judge in order to access the abortion care they seek. The Illinois General Assembly is considering bills sponsored by Senator L.G. Sims and Representative Anna Moeller that would repeal this harmful law. We are joined today for a discussion about this bill by two guests. Emily Wirth is a lawyer in the Women's and Reproductive Rights Project at the ACLU of Illinois. Emily has represented hundreds of young people as they have navigated the system required under this law. And Dr. Rebecca Camito is an OBGYN in practice here in the Chicago area, where, among other services, she provides her patients with abortion care. So Emily and Dr. Camino, we are so happy to have you join us for this discussion. Thank you. And so I want to start off, Emily, I did my shorthanded version of it, but just I wonder if you could just start off by setting the ground here. What is the parental notice law in Illinois and how long has it been in effect? Sure. So the Illinois Parental Notice of Abortion Act technically actually was passed back in 1995, but it didn't go into effect until 2013. And that was the result of almost two decades of litigation in both federal and state court by the ACLU of Illinois. For nearly two decades, we were able to prevent the law from going into effect, but our final court challenge, unfortunately, we lost. And so in the summer of 2013, this law did go into effect for the first time, impacting young people under the age of 18 in Illinois seeking abortion care. And as you said, it requires their healthcare provider to provide notice before they can have the abortion to a parent, a grandparent, a step parent they live with, or legal guardian. If the young person is not able to have one of those designated adult family members notified, then their alternative option is to go to court and seek what is called a judicial bypass waiver through a process where they have to meet with a judge and explain their decision-making process and their family circumstances and meet the standards under the law for this judicial bypass waiver. There seems to me to be embedded an assumption in here that young people would not tell a parent about their decision to have an abortion, and so therefore that we have to mandate it under the law. What do we know about how young people actually behave? There's been decades of research from around the country that's shown that the majority of young people are going to voluntarily talk to one of their parents, um, if not both, before seeking abortion care. And also that the younger the minor, the more likely they are to voluntarily choose to involve their parents in that process. Um, This has been borne out, as I said, in many studies since the 80s across the country in different settings, that for the majority of young people, a law like this is irrelevant. 
It doesn't affect their decision about who to involve in their abortion or the support that they decide to seek out from their parents. I'd certainly love to hear from Dr. Camito about yeah. her experience actually providing this care, but I would imagine it probably backs up these yeah, absolutely. findings. Absolutely. I would share that really the vast majority of young people who I care for are either bringing a trusted parent or direct caregiver with them to as their support person as they prepare to make decisions around inducing abortion, and that um, if they don't have an adult family member that is a parent or their direct guardian that is able to come with them, that they're also seeking support from affirming people in their extended or chosen family that are folks that they lean on when they come in for a procedure. So we absolutely see that kind of mirrored in our practice. In other words, you aren't seeing young people who are coming in who are just all by themselves alone without that voice of an adult or someone else who's engaged with them at, at this particular time, you know, whether it's to receive this health care or frankly any other. Absolutely. And that's a core part of our counseling as well with people um, when they come in for a procedure, no matter what type of procedure they're having, we also want to touch base with them about their supportive community and who's going to help care for them, um, who's going to help with transport. Those are all things that we look to young people to think through. And I've really been really impressed by the thoughtfulness that they've brought to the table with that. I'll say also as somebody who talks to young people going through the judicial bypass process, um, that's also part of the kind of party line that I talk with young people about is like, who are they leaning on for support? And I have really yet to have a conversation with a young person who hasn't identified some older people within their community that are, they're able to reach out to, to either help guide them through this and, and provide the various supports that they might need. I want to talk a little bit of, I, I think, what's the philosophy behind this law and behind these kinds of notice laws. One thing I want to get out on the table is we often hear this kind of canard of, oh, my gosh, they have to, a young person has to have parental notice or consent in order to take an aspirin at school. But Emily, isn't it true that a young person can really consent to all kinds of medical care without that kind of parental notice? Yes. The law in Illinois currently provides that if a person under 18 is pregnant, then they essentially have all the same rights to consent to medical care as an adult does. For a young person who's pregnant who decides to continue the pregnancy, they are able to consent to all the prenatal testing, all the prenatal care. They can make decisions about epidural or cesarean section during the childbirth. Once they give birth, they have full rights to make all medical decisions for their own child, even if they're still under 18. And the law is set out that way because we know that pregnancy-related care is time-sensitive and essential, and we want to make sure that young people who need to access pregnancy-related care can do so without unnecessary barriers. And then we make this one exception because we want to stigmatize abortion care in particular. So Dr. Camino, I want to pick up on that because I think when I hear the debate around this, that the one thing that comes through is exactly what Emily closed with, this idea that somehow abortion is different, that it's the other, that it's somehow not real health care. And I just wonder from your perspective what it must feel like as an OBGYN when a part of your care is described almost in a way that it's as though it's not really medical care. 
Yeah, I think that that's a, a really insightful question in general. I think that in general, the procedural aspect of abortion care really mirrors the procedural aspect that we use also for miscarriage management. It's a core part of obstetrician gynecology training across the U.S., and it is a core competency to learn how to induce abortion as part of our training in our professional field. And also knowing that um, somewhere between one in three and one in four people with the ability to become pregnant will induce abortion in their life. That means that the vast majority of patients that I care for um, will induce abortion in their life. And just as I celebrate and affirm folks who are deciding to continue a pregnancy and provide full spectrum obstetric care, also a core part of someone's reproductive freedom and ability to make timely decisions for themselves and their family and their community about when it's right to continue a pregnancy or not. It certainly can be difficult to hear that that piece of our practice and the way that we care for our community is is isolated or separate. It just isn't what it really bears out in practice to be. The idea that that's a siloed kind of othered practice is really not kind of the current practice in the way that we need to think about giving or providing holistic care for the patients that we um, have the privilege of caring for. You know, I'll just observe, I just say it's odd to me in legislative debates and discussions to see reverence for physicians and then a discussion about abortion providers sure. as though there's some gap in there. Yeah. And really there isn't. And I, I am in many ways honored to hear that, but I think that, you know, c- certain providers may make choices, procedures that they may not want to engage in, but also that's really, again, it's a core part of what practice is. And I think that many providers across the spectrum provide full spectrum gynecologic, obstetric, and abortion care. And all of that falls within the sphere of the type of care that we provide. And I think many of my colleagues would feel similarly. And what do we know about the safety of abortion procedures? Yeah, abortions are extremely, extremely safe. An abortion is much, much safer than continuing a pregnancy to term. And particularly when abortions occur in the first trimester, they're very quick procedures that are safe. They can be done in an outpatient setting. And if a patient has different medical issues that may require um, increased supervision, they also can occur in the hospital setting. The vast majority of the procedures we perform take about five minutes. There's minimal blood loss. Patients are able to recover kind of comfortably in clinic and then head home and kind of continue their day. So in many ways, this procedure is truly one that is quick and effective and safe and that we have the ability to provide that for somebody when they need it with pride. And we also have medication that we can use uh, to induce abortion as well in the first trimester um, up to typically about 10 weeks gestation. Um, That also is a really safe and effective way to perform an induced abortion. And we have a lot of safety checks in place to make sure that patients feel in control and comfortable. And overall, it's just an extremely safe process. So when we hear supporters of parental notice laws argue that they're necessary so that someone can be aware of this dangerous procedure or this complicated procedure, that's not really accurate. Absolutely. That really does not mirror what the practice is itself. Um, We go through a really deliberate informed consent process with any patient that's having any procedure to make sure they understand the risks and benefits and also the safety plans that are in place. The procedure itself, again, is extremely safe. And then we also are performing these procedures in 
um, an environment that we have the ability to just make sure that that environment is is safe for our patients. Um, and so I would just affirm that we would never proceed with something that that we didn't have that kind of level of comfort with and preparedness in order to to keep people safe. Emily, you talk to young people going through this process. So what are some of the reasons that someone wouldn't want to give notice to a parent or one of the designated adults? What, what are the things you most often hear? I'd say the two things that I hear the most often are that the young person knows that their family is opposed to abortion and fears that if their desire to seek an abortion is revealed, that their family will try to prevent them from seeing it through and force them to continue that pregnancy against their wishes, or that they're afraid they will lose their housing or be cut off financially by their parents. And a lot of times these concerns are not, they're not just imaginary concerns. They're based on things that have been said within the family, things that have been observed with older siblings or cousins who've actually gotten pregnant at a young age and had that exact thing happen to them. Those are sort of the two most common reasons that we tend to hear from the clients who seek our assistance with judicial bypass. Um, But we also hear from young people who are afraid of physical or emotional abuse, who are afraid that informing a a parent or other adult family member about the fact that they're seeking abortion care could cause significant disruption within the current family dynamic. We have a lot of clients who don't have much, if any, relationship with their parents um, and are living with other adults who are not actually their legal guardians and or parents who are incarcerated, who are sick going through chemotherapy or recovering from a heart attack. I mean, we've had clients in all those sorts of family circumstances where they just don't have that kind of stable and supportive present relationship with their family to be able to give them notice. And because abortion is a time-sensitive procedure, you know, we can't wait for that parent to get out of jail or recover fully from the heart attack or any other, you know, change in circumstances. We need to deal with the young person is where they are at with their family circumstances right now. You know, as I hear you describe all of those circumstances, I guess the the thing that occurs is the thing about this is we're trying to force a conversation in a familial structure that doesn't necessarily always exist for every young person. Absolutely. I mean, that's the fundamental problem with this law is it assumes a one size fits all family dynamic that is utterly unrealistic and not reflected in the real world for a lot of families. Um, And as Dr. Comito mentioned, for a lot of the young people that we serve, they have involved support networks in their decision. They have significant support networks, multiple people oftentimes that they have talked to that are helping them, that are serving as a both emotional and logistical support for them, chosen family, essentially. But the law doesn't recognize that. And it's just unrealistic to assume that every person has that particular relationship with their parents. As I mentioned, the majority do. And because the majority do, they they voluntarily involve their parents because that's who they go to with any important decision in their life. But not everyone is in that circumstance. Yeah, and I will just affirm like time and time again how um, sort of impressed I am by the young person's ability to really sort of, they know their experience best, they know their social and family dynamic best, and they're the ones that kind of assess for safety and assess for um, who are the folks that they need to surround themselves to feel affirmed and to feel safe. And I have not been steered wrong by leaning in and really trusting that they are going to guide me in that process and that my role as a care provider really in any care that I'm providing um, is to 
to listen to that person and to help connect the dots for them. And when they share with me that they have chosen to involve certain people and not others, um, I really feel like it is our role to honor that, um, again, because they are the, the experts at their experience. So why do you think these laws exist? What's their purpose? In my view, the purpose of this law is to target a specific population and make abortion access difficult for that population. There are many laws that do similar things. The Hyde Amendment restrictions on Medicaid coverage for abortion, are is a, it's a similar thing. The government has a way of controlling a particular group that is low-income people who have Medicaid insurance. It's this is a way of controlling their access to health care. It's a lever that, you know, anti-choice politicians use. Parental involvement laws are the same thing. Young people under 18 are just as capable as people over 18 to make decisions about pregnancy, whether or not to continue a pregnancy, whether or not to seek abortion care. But because the legal status of people under 18 is typically different, politicians use that to go after a vulnerable group and restrict their access to care. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more. Um, I think that in general, many people are attempting to restrict abortion access, limit it, or make it obsolete from a legal standpoint, and that there is kind of an emphasis on finding spaces in which um, that can be chipped away at. Um, people are making decisions about young people that are not young people themselves, that are not perhaps representing their constituents or really what is happening on the ground. So I think it's restrictive practices that are really trying to take advantage of an environment where they can leap on a restriction that really, again, does not affirm or elevate the community that we care for. And, and quickly, Emily, on our way out, there are other states, correct, that operate without these laws? That's correct. I believe the current number is that there are 37 states that do have some form of forced parental involvement law, whether it's a parental consent or a parental notice requirement like we have in Illinois, but that means there are 13 states that don't have anything like that. And young people access abortion care in those states. They involve their their parents or other family members when they can. They don't when they cannot. Um, and, and they are safe and affirmed in doing so. Um, and it's really high time that Illinois became one of those states that recognizes the dignity of young people seeking abortion care. And so I take it that both of you would like to see this law repealed. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, well, Dr. Camino, thanks so much for joining us. I really do appreciate both of you taking the time to talk to us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. So we mentioned earlier that a minor who cannot provide notification to a parent or one of the designated family members can go to court to seek what's called a judicial bypass waiver to receive the care they need without providing the notification. Since the law went into effect in 2013, the ACLU of Illinois has operated the Judicial Bypass Coordination Project, which helps young people get an attorney and then navigate this court process. We're going to dig into that process a little bit with an expert who has seen it close up. Joining Emily and me is retired Cook County Judge Susan Fox-Gillis. Judge Fox Gillis sat on the bench in Cook County Circuit Court, where, among other matters that she heard, she presided over hearings of young people seeking a bypass waiver. Since she's retired, she's also taken the extraordinary step of advocating to remove this law. And Judge Fox Gillis, welcome to Talking Liberties. Good morning. Good to see you. Well, it's good to see you. And Emily, I, I think just to set up the conversation with the judge, 
I want to go back a little bit to the role over the years of the ACLU and the Judicial Bypass Coordination Project in making contact, in preparing young people for these hearings. How does that process all work? Who's, who's part of it? How do you connect people to lawyers? What, how does that part of it work? Thanks, Ed. The ACLU, as you mentioned, has operated this Judicial Bypass Coordination Project since the law went into effect in 2013. And we have a hotline that young people who may be in need of assistance can reach out to by phone, by text, by email. We're available nights and weekends. We try to be available at the times that young people actually are able to speak and and may want to talk and ask for our help. And if a young person contacts us and expresses an interest in possibly going through the judicial bypass process, then we will collect information from them about their situation. Why is it that they're not able to involve one of the designated adult family members? What their availability would be to actually go to court and see the judge? Because for young people who have school and oftentimes other responsibilities like jobs or helping to take care of siblings, you know, we need to be very thoughtful about how we schedule the hearing to make sure that it works for their schedule and that they will be able to attend without alerting their family that they're going through this process. So we we work with them to help them understand what it would be, what it would mean to go through this process and figure out how they could actually make that happen. And then we have pro bono attorneys that we've trained to handle these specific types of cases all over the state. And so then once we know when the client is available to go to court, we find an attorney who has the same availability and put them in touch with each other so that they can prepare. And the attorney helps the client to understand what the court process is like, what kinds of questions they're going to have to answer, make sure that they feel comfortable and, and as ready as they possibly can for this very unfamiliar, scary process. And then the attorney goes to court with them until spring of 2020. That meant actually going to a courthouse in person and um, having a meeting with the judge face to face. Uh, For the last year, we have been doing these hearings via Zoom, but our attorneys are there every step of the way to help young people navigate the process. A few weeks ago, we talked with Margaret Worth, who is not a relative of yours, but Margaret Worth from Human Rights Watch about her report. And she identified some of the obstacles that young people have in terms of getting to the courthouse door, getting away from in a time when they won't be noticed, maybe getting away from school or work or having resources. Are those the big obstacles that you see as well in terms of your work with clients? Yes, absolutely. Before the pandemic, when we were doing in-person hearings, getting away and doing so safely without alerting their family was a, a very tricky obstacle, especially because court is open at the same time that school is in session. And for a lot of young people, if they're missing from school, their parents will be notified. That's just school policy. So finding a a time that they could get themselves to the courthouse without the fact that they were not where they were otherwise expected to be being made known to their parents was often very tricky. Now that we're doing virtual hearings, that's less of an issue, of course. But the new issue that we often see is that young people are at home and their family is also at home at the same time. And so being able to get on Zoom and have a the, the Zoom meeting with the judge without being concerned that a family member might overhear or even just walk in in the middle of the hearing, it's been a significant concern for some of our clients. So Judge Fox Gillis, Emily's just described essentially bringing the young person, we'll say virtually in, in this time, they've been prepped, they're prepared, the filing is made. 
what happens from the perspective of a judge in these cases? And what were you looking to do to try to make this process at least somewhat easier for the young person? Well, it's a good question. We tried, and, and I always tried to, to make it as easy as possible for the people coming in. We knew how difficult it was for a young person to get into court. I was practicing, or I was sitting in the Circuit Court of Cook County, as you mentioned, and that's downtown Chicago. And most of these young people were not really close to Chicago. It was a transportation issue. So we often knew that they wouldn't get there at the time that they said they were going to get there. They would be late. Occasionally they were early, but almost always they would get there late. But we accommodated that. Even if they were there after hours, a judge would stay in order to hear the case. But once they got there, we understood that these were young people who were not used to being in court. We tried to make it as comfortable as possible. They would come in and we heard the cases in our chambers. I never wore my robe when they were there. I would sit down at my desk and have them sitting opposite me. I would explain to them that the court reporter was sitting next to me. Their lawyer was next to them. The court reporter would take down everything they said. I would ask them questions after their lawyer questioned them. Um, so I explained the whole process to them. And then I explained that after the testimony was heard, I would tell them how I was going to rule, but they would have to wait until I actually prepared the order and gave it to him and put it on the record. So I explained in detail, and I know all the other judges tried to do the same thing to make sure they understood what was happening. And it's interesting, I mean, not being in the courtroom, which I think we all know is being before a judge in a courtroom can feel overwhelming to many of us. Did you feel like you had to ask invasive questions? Was that part of that process in terms of making sure that they met the legal standard for, for getting the bypass? Yes. Not only did I have to ask invasive questions, but their lawyers did too. They're very personal questions. I just wonder what it was like for you in terms of sitting there in front of a young person, in terms of their being so anxious or so nervous being in that position. I wonder just on a personal level, sort of how you dealt with that. Well, I have grandchildren that are the ages of the young women that came in. So I was very empathetic about this. And I understood that you know, at this age, these young people, they haven't been in court. They haven't had experiences like this. While I had to ask probing questions, I tried to be sensitive about it. And I told them that I was going to have to do that. Did you ever come across the situation where you questioned the validity of their reason for not notifying someone? Or did you, did you feel like every single one of those cases you saw that the person had a valid reason and, and really had a fear for not in, in terms of not notifying a parent. Well, as, as we discussed, the attorneys asked probing questions. I asked questions too, so that I was sufficiently satisfied. And in every case that I heard, I found in favor of the young woman's petition. So Emily, what is it like being there as a lawyer with a client once they get that word that they're going to get the bypass? Do you see a change? Do you see a, a shift in terms of, of the attitude or personality of that young person? I mean, it's really a palpable relief every time. Judge Fox Gillis described the steps that she and many of the other judges in Cook County tried to take to put young people at ease. But, but even with those steps, 
inevitably having to go through this experience was extremely anxiety provoking for the young person because as we've discussed they had to share private intimate details about their lives to make to meet the legal standard that the judge was looking for and as much as we worked with them beforehand and and prepped them to understand what was going to happen and and tried to help them feel ready to go through this process there was always that unknown of whether they were going to get the judicial bypass and be able to make the healthcare decision that they needed or whether they were going to be subjected to, you know, potentially being kicked out of their house or being forced to continue a pregnancy. And that that was a possibility. Every time a young person went into the hearing process, you could feel the anxiety, you could feel the fear that that, that, that might come to pass. And then once they did hear back from the judge that their judicial bypass waiver was going to be granted, the lifting of that anxiety and that fear is very was always very palpable and really yeah. or changed. It's a shame they ever had to go through the experience in the first place. Yeah. Judge, I, I mentioned this before, but it's really extraordinary that as a retired judge, you've taken this position of advocating for this law to be repealed. And I wonder if you can explain a little bit of what made you reach that decision and become active in this effort? Well, when we started handling these cases, I was really impressed with the maturity of the young women that came in. And I had an, a lot of empathy for them because I could see how, how important this was and how seriously they took it. In the years I was handling those cases, I realized, of course, that I had granted all of mine. And then when I talked to other judges, I learned that these were by and large being granted. Possibly 100% of them had been granted. And I thought, why are we putting these young women through a really traumatic activity, having them come into court, having to go through all the process to do this for something that seems to be in the end a pro forma matter? As I saw the maturity of these young people and the fact that they were well-informed and they knew what they were doing and they could talk to me about the consequences and the repercussions, they were always very impressive. And I thought, this is not right that we are putting somebody through this process when I know they have to go through all of these steps without coming to court. They have to be well-advised, they have to be informed, they have to have all of that information given to them before they can go through with the procedure. So why add this step that not only is difficult for them, but could be dangerous? So then it really probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, the number that I've heard Emily use before, that of more than 500 of these bypass requests across the state, you know, only one of them has ever been denied. That does not come as a surprise to me at all. These young people come in well-informed, and they tell stories about family situations that are, can be quite traumatic. They tell stories about parents who have told them that they would kick them out of the house, make them have go through with the pregnancy and kick them out of the house. And they tell you that you know their older sister had exactly that happen. And now the older sister's dropped out of school and trying to raise a child. And that that's the future they would see. So at the end of the day, is it fair to characterize your involvement in this simply that you see this as a, something that is not really helpful to the young people who go through it and, and doesn't really serve any purpose? Well, more than that, I would say it's not helpful, but it's potentially very harmful. So, Emily, there is a bill again this year to repeal this in the Illinois legislature. 
I wonder what you think about how people can take action listening to this in terms of, you know, what they should be doing in order to make their voices heard if they believe that this is a law we should do away with as well. The most important thing that anyone can do right now is let their legislators know that they want us to get rid of this harmful law, that they want us to remove these dangerous barriers to reproductive health care for young people under 18 in Illinois. It's not something that can wait. It's not something that we should postpone for another time. There are young people being harmed every day because this law is on the books and folks need to let their legislators know that they want they want this to be voted on as soon as possible. And there are tools on the ACLU of Illinois website, but you and your friends and your family and your community the most important thing you can do is let legislators know that the time to get rid of this law is overdue. And Judge, I, I just want to say you had a chance a couple of years ago to go and testify before a Senate committee on this. Are you looking forward to going back to Springfield or virtually back to Springfield to testify again? Well, I am. I think this is a very important issue. And as Emily stated, it should be revoked. It should be taken off the books. and. I am willing to do that. Great. So Emily and Judge Fox Gillis, thank you so much for joining us today. I really hope that you'll come back when we repeal this bill and we can do a sort of a celebratory podcast talking about the end of the Parental Notice Act of Abortion here in Illinois. That would be wonderful, Ed. Yeah, thanks, Ed. And thanks, Judge Fox Gillis, for joining us today. Good to see you both. Thanks so much. Take care. If you want more information about our efforts to repeal the Parental Notice of Abortion Law, you can find it on our website at www.aclu-il.org slash legislative action. Or you can just go to our front page, click on our legislative initiatives for 2021 and search for Senate Bill 2190. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties. We appreciate your following us. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Cozio. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and rate us. You can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with more Talking Liberties.